Good morning. Uh, welcome to everybody who here. We're really glad that you're here together. And, and like Bo said, um, um, I agree that uh, I didn't go to Cancun, but I missed you guys this week too. And uh, I th- definitely feel like the Spirit of God is always with us as we gather. And um, uh, thank you to June and the praise team for being here early in the morning and setting up and leading us through those songs. Uh, I especially like it when once in a while we get an acoustic set in, you know, get rid of the drums and electric guitars and stuff. Um, it's nice to have uh, hear your voices. Um, but let me pray for us really quickly, actually, one more time, and then we're going to jump in. God, we want to commit um, the entirety of our being to you, uh, every part of our lives, and um, we also want to make a commitment right now to uh, commit ourselves to each other, uh, that we wouldn't be here just sitting as individuals, um, but we would be here together as a collective unit. And we pray that your spirit truly would unify us. And and in this series, we've been talking about maybe things that are not all that comfortable to talk about, like sex and, and, you know, things related. But as a family, we want to be open to uh, just inviting each other into our lives in every which way so that we can grow together, so that we can bless you, and so that we can bless the world. Um, So give us a sensitivity to your word and to each other. Um, and we pray that uh, just as um, we know that you are here, Lord, we, in, through the songs that we were singing and through the prayers and even through our giving, uh, we pray that you would uh, teach us um, powerfully this morning as, um, as we just dive into the study of your word. Uh, so we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, actually, June mentioned it really quickly that this past weekend, uh, the worship ministry uh, went on a retreat. So we were just away in New Hampshire. We came back last night. And uh, I'm really... Very blessed to say that there were 23 of us who went away. It's pretty awesome. Um, and when we got there, so we drove up to New Hampshire, just, you know, not too far, but we like to get away from the city, have some more trees and grass around us when we try to have a restful retreat. When we got there, uh, I walked, it's a fairly small place, but there's 23 of us again, and there were two bathrooms. And I walked into one of them, and I was going to pee, and I looked down into the toilet bowl, and it was a block of ice, just frozen. And I looked into the sink, and it was uh, backed up, so the water was, like, at the brim. And so I thought about it, and I was like, that means there's 23 people in one bathroom. So uh, eventually, later on in the, in the day, as we were there, uh, it got taken care of. But when I instantly thought of 23 p- people to one bathroom, what would you have thought? Because what I thought was, when am I going to find time to take a dump without people noticing? <laughs> on worship team. Who thought that? Be honest. Where are you? Where is everybody? Jason, yeah, yeah, you thought that, right? You know how, like, you ever be a part of a meeting or a small class where you got to, you know, nature calls, you got to go to the bathroom, uh, and all you're thinking is, man, they're just going to, everyone's going to be thinking why I'm taking so long. You ever think that before, and you go in there, and you rush, and you push really hard, and, like, giving yourself hemorrhoids just so people won't know that you're pooing? I've had this conversation a lot with people, how it's interesting how there's universal truths about humanity that for some odd reason we're still embarrassed about. Like, isn't that weird? You poo, I poo, you fart, I fart. But for some reason, if you accidentally fart in public, it's like, oh my God, I died a little bit on the inside. (laughs) Why? We all know that we do it. It's a part of humanity. But why is it so embarrassing? What, you know, today, it's kind of similar with our topic of sex, right? We're all sexual beings. We are male or female. We have sexual reproductive organs. We have different, 
like hormones inside of our bodies and feelings and all this. And, and of course, of course, privacy is due to, you know, of certain extents, right? Of course, if, if you're in the bathroom, someone, you, there's a reason why we have a door, right? Like people shouldn't be watching you and like, and the same things with our sexuality, right? Like there's, of course, privacy that is due. But I think that one of the reasons why we want to do this series is to normalize the conversation as well. To normalize the issues, to be more comfortable in being real with one another to talk about that. I don't actually have it all together. And it's in fact not a shame for me to tell a brother and sister that my sexual life in a lot of ways is broken and I'm trying to fix it. I'm trying to work on it. And I know that you are too. So can we pause this like whole shameful aspect and not be the ones rushing out of the bathroom in case somebody knows that we had to, to go number two. And with our sexual lives and with the ways that God created us, he made us this way, just be real with each other and real with God. So we're going to be talking about the topic, you know, we've, you know, it's been this bubble of God's sexuality and relationships, but today we're going to specifically talk about sexual sin, the, that, the, you know, the thing that, of course, we would want to keep private. It's something that whether right now or in the past or in the future, all of us either have, are, or will, or maybe a combination of three are wrestling with. And it's different, right? All of us have a different story. All of us wrestling means something different to you, and that's totally fine. But as God's children, we all have sexual identity. We will, or if not, I've already have sexual pleasures and victories and blessings, as well as, as, well as downfalls, sins, and failures. We're all in the same boat. So we're going to talk about that today. So we're going to be reading out of John 8, and we're going to be reading from the beginning of the chapter through verse 11. So either you can take out your your Bibles or your phone apps, or you can, uh, if you have a good view, you can take a look up on the screen. John 8. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. So Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as we read, um, you know, the, it's, this is like a narrative part of the gospel, so it's pretty f- easy to follow along what's going on in the story. Um, but just in, 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 in quick review and just to go through the text, we, we see that Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. The next morning he wakes up, he's teaching people, and then Pharisees and scribes come to him, and this is where the interaction begins. The Pharisees say, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery, now, in the law, Moses commanded to stone such women. So what do you say? 
This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. So it seems clearly like on one, so one thing they're doing is they're completely shaming this woman. It's not common, even, even the centuries ago, for someone who sins to be brought in front of everybody, the community publicly. But also we see that they're not so much concerned about her at all. They, they are just trying to use someone as a tool to get, to attack Jesus. So in verse 6, it says it right there. They said this to test him so they might have something against him. They're trying to shame him. They're trying to shame her. But they're trying to catch Jesus in his word so they can make him stumble and so they can have stuff to accuse him with. And for some reason, we don't know. People can speculate, but honestly, don't follow those trails, in my opinion. He, he begins and writes on the ground. And, and so they're like, what the heck? Like, answer the question. So they keep pressing into him, answer the question. And he stands up and he says one of the most famous verses that I'm sure all of us, even if we aren't regular churchgoers, have heard before. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. What an awesome, awesome statement, right? And it's interesting because in this text we see that what happens as a response after this is everybody who is there drops the stone and they walk away. So they came with the purpose of shaming him, and they leave the ones embarrassed. Because the dropping of the stone and the leaving meant, actually, I have all this stuff messed up in my life, just like this woman who I'm trying to uh, abuse. So they all leave. And then, this is the part that I really want to just like dive into this morning. Jesus is left alone with the woman because everybody's gone. Not a single one of them stays. And John writes, Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. He stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Verse 11, she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. So how does he deal with this woman's sexual sin? He says, I don't condemn you either. The interesting thing is that after everybody left, Jesus could have, right? His statement was, he who is without sin. And we, are, we believe that he was without sin. So after everybody left, Jesus could have stood up and said, where is everybody? Did they not condemn you? And she said, no one, Lord. And the next line could have very well and perfectly been, well, I do. I condemn you. Objectively, what she did was wrong. Who we don't see in the story is her husband, who she apparently cheated on. Which is wrong, right? We would all agree. Infidelity, adultery is just something you should not do. But instead of condemning her, when this woman is pulled out to be publicly shamed, Jesus has this beautiful, tender, loving mercy touch of grace. Neither do I condemn you. I want to look at this, this line, these, this last line a little bit more closely. And and split it in half. Neither do I condemn you. This is just, in my opinion, just like explicit core gospel presentation. That our sins are forgiven in Christ because of his blood. That although we are uh, deserving of his condemnation, that we've been recipients of grace. That we are washed as snow, white as snow from his blood. And and the thing is with, with... Sexual sin, as I think we kind of categorize it differently, it, for good reason, right? Like, it is different, it is more harmful, it can be more damaging, but when it comes to the receiving of grace, that's where I would ask us not to separate, because I feel like a lot of us have ease of, of being recipients of grace when it comes to, like, I don't know, lying, 
Maybe like fudging our taxes or speeding and, and cursing somebody off on the road or, or I don't know, whatever our vices are. We are receiving God's grace. But for some reason, I feel like when it comes to our sexual failures, we block the gospel out of our lives. And what I want to do is just kind of point us to this example. Don't truncate the gospel. Jesus did not like die on the cross and say, your sins are forgiven, but leave an asterisk in fine print and say, blackout dates apply, actually. There's exclusions. And that's when you sleep around or when you watch too much pornography. The gospel is this, you know, you know how we just sang, um, and I could sing of your love forever, uh, I will open up my heart and let the spirit set me free. That's what I think that we can really just, that's what I'm wanting for all of us, to open up your heart, to receive this line to you, actually, neither do I condemn you, and to let the spirit set you free. Sexuality and your sexual sin, it's a part of what makes us up, but we're not identified by that. You are not just a product of the bad things that you've done in your life. You are a child of God who has been redeemed and washed by his blood. It's a part of your makeup, but it does not make up who you are. This is what makes up who you are. In 1 John, John writes in chapter 3, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Can you read that again on your own? Just look up on the screen and just read that for yourself. And I hope you believe it. As God's beloved children, we can receive the riches of his grace into our sexual sin because we're his children. We're his children. The second half of the statement, Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. And then he says, go, and from now on, sin no more. He first forgives, and then he commands. He first is gracious, then gives exhortation. He first does his part, and then asks for the woman's part. So what I want to do is not just glean over the order of events here. If we were to switch around and say, go in from sin no more, neither do I condemn you, I think the passage would be different. Because, in my opinion... The order is important because joy and gratefulness in receiving pardon from sin is the great fuel that enables you to obey. Grace is what empowers our purity. How many of us have been in habitual sin, especially when it comes to our sex lives? A lot of us. How many of you have don't like that about your, you, your life? A lot of us. How many of you have tried something and it just doesn't work? A lot of us. Willpower will not redeem you from your sin. You and I know that. We've tried, and it doesn't work. What does work is when our willpower is fueled by a joy in being forgiven. Joy is so much more of a powerful, powerful motivator of obedience than guilt. So I want to talk about how that order is really important. The power and resolves, like that kind of stuff, or our willpower, it, it, when it's fueled by joy for God's grace for you is when you will start to find victory. Nothing else is going to arm you like that. And there's also something else in the statement that I don't want to miss that if we just kind of glean over and read quickly. 
He says, go from now on and sin no more. And a lot of us, our minds are automatically going to jump to, okay, stop, fill in the blank of sinful, said sinful thing, said bad thing. But what I don't, I, I don't think Jesus is expecting just that. I think it's a two-part response that he's asking for after he's gracious with her and after he's gracious with us. Because it's not just don't do bad things, but I think he wants so much more of us in the honoring him through this area of our lives. So scripture says not to curse, not to curse against the brother, but it also says sing praises. It also says use your mouth to encourage. That your tongue is a damaging and a powerful thing in a bad way, but let's use it in a good way. And the same goes with our sexuality. It's not just don't, you know, don't sleep around. It's honor God with the way that he created your body. It's two parts. It's not just about not clicking the, the bad links on your, on your computer. It's about trying to ask for God to renew you so that in your masculinity or femininity, you can bring glory to God our Father. You know, there's like past generations that like, you, you, when you think about like just a you know, handful of decades or whatever ago when like, you know, sex was seen as something so bad and like Elvis was like Satan because he moved his hips too much, you know, like, I, I, yeah, we're like, oh yeah, we're, we're, we're progressive and liberal and those people are old farts who are just like fundamentalists. I think we kind of, kind of have a little bit of trickle effect of what they believe too. That kind of, we, we kind of like more than not think of our sexuality and sex as a bad thing than as a good thing. But we realize that God made us Sexual beings, right? It wasn't like in Genesis 3, like Eve, like the serpent's like Eve, like, you know, did God really say that? Here, take this. And she takes the fruit and eats it and gives it to Adam. And then all of a sudden he's like, oh my God, I feel horny. Like, it's like, that's not how it worked. It wasn't like, you know, God's like, oh, to the serpent, you know, cursed are you for stumbling them. And to the man, God said, I will curse you with genitalia. And he's like, oh my God, like, what is it? When, when Adam and Eve were created, they had genitals. And you know what, you know what in Genesis 1, like Genesis 1, beginning, the very beginning, Genesis 1, God says to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. He says, use your baby makers and make lots of babies. That was honoring to him. It is worshipful. It is actually our command to enjoy sex, to make families, to share love physically with another person. It wasn't the result of sin. So when Jesus says to the woman who committed adultery and to us, go and sin no more, it means saying, it's two parts. It means saying no to like a worldly, distorted, selfish, twisted sex and saying yes to a God-created, pure and God-honoring sexuality. So how do we respond? Um, I have two points of application in ways that I want us to respond. The first is this. Receive the grace of God into your sexual sin and accept that God has forgiven you and also grow to forgive yourself. This is just straight from the first thing that Jesus said to the woman or in the first um, sentence that we picked apart. He says, neither do I condemn you And the way that we can apply this passage is to receive God's grace and to forgive yourself as well. Think about what the woman went through, and let's put ourselves into her shoes. So she did something improper, but she's brought out into public. 
who knows? I'm just speculating. Maybe like kicking and screaming and she's being pulled by these people who are just, just shaming and abusing her. And she's probably feeling like a mixture of a lot of emotions like shame and like fear and, 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 and like embarrassment and, and anger and anxiety. Maybe all these things combined. And she's not just brought on in public. She's brought in front of Jesus of all people. And she's expecting this great, great shame. And we find in this passage that she receives so much love that even thousands of years later, we don't know her name, but we're talking about this woman who did something bad, but who got so much love from God. And can't we put ourselves in her shoes and be the same, be in the same position? The woman expects shame and she receives love. Don't block the gospel out of your sexual sin. Receive the love. Mean what you saying. You're a good, good father. I'm loved by you. It's who I am. And it's who you are. We got to receive the grace into it. And we got to accept it. And also, for those of us who are just really, really hard on ourselves, it's fine to hold yourself to a standard. It's fine to, of course, want more. It's fine to have some guilt here and there. Because when we don't do what we want us to do, of course we're going to feel guilty. That's fine. But not to the point in which you're just like, just so like beating yourself up that discounts the love of God for you. My second point, second application is this. Be empowered by God's grace to renew all areas of sexuality in your life to honor God. So this is the let's stop doing the bad, but let's not stop there. It's two parts. We're adding the good into our lives. The way that I like to approach this, and some of you, when I've sat down with you one-on-one, I've talked about this, diet and exercise. So if we look at diet and exercise, right, the goal is to be healthy. If we were to just diet, let's say I were to just eat lettuce and I would get super, super thin, am I a healthy person? Probably not. I might be thin. I might be the desired weight. But my bones and muscles and joints and ligaments and all that what's going on isn't being strengthened, isn't being toned and built, isn't being taken care of. And on the flip side, I could be all muscular and built because I'm so uh, uh, good at going to the gym. But if I'm just eating like, you know, like Wendy's four for four all day, my arteries all clogged, right? Just because you got biceps, it don't mean, you know, your lung, your like everything else is in a good place. So we need both, right, to be healthy. And I think it's the same with our sexual Uh, sexuality and even the fight against sexual sin and the desire to honor God with our sexuality. So here's the exercise part. And this is something that we talk about very often that you're very familiar with. It's, It's finding the accountability partner. It's normalizing the conversation. The exercise is, is not being embarrassed and shameful to ask somebody to help you and to tell them and to confess and say, hey, can you pray for and with me as I try to make a 180-degree turn in my life and to repent and to turn away from this sin that's been in my life. The exercise is, for some of you uh, who struggle with pornography but who have roommates, is only using your computer in public spaces or getting a sight blocker or asking friends to keep you accountable again. Some of us, it's avoiding heavy drinking and substance abuse because that gets you into trouble with your sex lives. Some of you, it's about not staying over each other's homes all the time because you just know what you're setting yourself up for. That's the exercise part, and you already know that. And you may have tried and failed, but just like, you know, New Year's comes, you know, I work part-time in the fitness industry, so I see all the, in January 1st, our, like, registration is like, And then in February, it's like crickets. You know, like, 
we're, we're like that too with our sexuality exercising, if you will. We just got to get back into the gym. But here's the part that we don't hear too often is the diet. What are you consuming and what are you not consuming? What foods, if you will, are you consuming and what are you not? I feel like a lot of us don't have like a defense for what we're consuming. We don't really think about it that often or challenge each other. Have you ever gone to a movie? I want you to think about like you and your friends just went out to see a movie. You went to see like Zoolander 2 and you're you're walking out. And and what's the first thing that happens? Well, some of you will go to the bathroom and you'll need to poo, but you'll rush it really fast, right? But others of you will be like, hey, um, what did you think? And so you share, oh, like that scene was hilarious and this scene and this scene. How many of you have had this experience when talking about a film in which somebody says, oh, like I like this, I like that, but this part was so unrealistic, you know, we talk about that once in a while, like James Bond is just like, he's running in a tuxedo. He just drank a lot, but for some reason he's not buzzed. And there's like thousands of bullets being shot at him. He's like, woo, 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 woo. And he didn't get hit. And, every, and, and you know, you've had that talk, right? Like, oh my God, like it's so unrealistic. Or the new Die, Die Hard that came out when like Bruce Willis is like jumping out of helicopters and like hanging on. Like it's just so unrealistic. How many of you ever heard somebody say that about a sex scene? Have you ever heard anybody say that? Or about a love scene? Or maybe, maybe somebody said, oh, the notebook is too gushy and it's not real. But, but do you ever talk about that seriously? I, I think, maybe it's just me, I think we partially, we don't talk about it, maybe it's shameful, but also because we don't really, we, we kind of think it's true. We're, a lot of us are kind of waiting for that moment where we're on a date and the rainstorm comes and we're like, oh, we run out into an alley and then rain is dripping, we throw them against the brick wall and it's like... You know, like, I think a lot of us secretly are waiting for that to happen. We think it's kind of true. Or the girl, you know, ladies, I guess some of the sensitive guys too. We're kind of waiting for someone to be like, oh, like stand in the middle of a road and be like, I'm not leaving until you go on a date with me. And we're like, oh, like, and somebody to sweep you off your feet. And those YouTube proposals that are so like, the dude rents out the movie theater. Like you think that, you, you kind of want that to happen to you. So you don't think it's that unrealistic. You know sex scenes when they like throw everything off the kitchen table and just do it on the kitchen counter? All I can think of is, who's going to clean all that up? Like, oh, how rude. Spent all the time scrubbing and organizing the salt, and you just got it all over the place. Got to get the Swiffer out, you know? I don't know if that really happens. It doesn't happen to me. You, so you ever lay down on the floor? Do you want a 100-something pound person jumping on you on the floor? I don't know. Maybe. Whatever. I think... The movies are unrealistic, but we don't call them out. We just absorb. There's no filter. James Bond is bogus, but the notebook, that stuff's legit. We need to be concerned about our diet. What are we eating? Because it matters. It affects you. How many of us hate sexual exploitation? I would think all of us would raise our hands, that you would hate, you know, you know, sex trafficking is becoming a big thing, right? And, you know, there's, there's organizations like IJM, International Justice Mission, and, and, and even, in this, you know, with the Super Bowl and the World Cup, like, there's, there's great, awesome people, volunteers, who are going and trying to, you know, rescue these girls and these women from sex slavery, even little boys. 
I got a mailer the other day. It had a little boy's picture on the cover. And I was like, what is this? And I opened it. And it said, did you expect that this little boy is also a high population of sex slavery? We just think girls, right? But it's little boys too. We all would say, we hate that, right? It's horrific. It gets my blood boiling. But when it's on TV, it's just entertainment, right? It doesn't make us that angry. A few years ago, uh, this really, really popular show was just like sweeping the country, maybe the world, I don't, I don't know about the world, but at least the country. And it just so happened to coincide, like I don't pay for, you know, show, uh, uh, what is it called, HBO and like uh, stars and those things. Like, I don't really watch too much television, so there's no point in me paying for extra. But once in a while, the cable companies are all nice and friendly. They're like, oh, you get a free trial for this many months. And it just so happened to coincide, and I got a free trial of HBO. And this new show called Game of Thrones, based upon a book, came out. And I was watching the first season, and I got hooked. Like, man, this stuff was entertaining. And at the same time, my wife happened to be talking, or her coworkers were talking about it, some, uh, is what I understand. And they were talking to about how, like, there's so many graphic scenes that have distortions of sex in it. There's incest, prostitution, a lot of abuse, a lot of beating women. And so she came home and she asked me, like, hey, like, I know that you're watching that show. Is it true that, like, there's those kind of scenes? And I was like, uh, yeah, there are. And this is some, an interaction with my wife and I that I'll never forget because she didn't judge, she didn't reprimand. She, this is one of the times where I saw in her eyes, like, God's character because she asked me a very gentle question without any anger or agenda, or even like, oh, you have to, nothing. It was just, are you okay with watching things like that? Just asking. My answer was yes. I am. It's just TV. It's entertaining. It's not about prostitution. It's not about incest. It's about dragons. Let me tell you about these dragons. There's this lady, and, and there's this throne. It's made of swords, and she's going to sit on it. I gotta, can't wait till she sits on it, because they're babies. But one day, they'll be big. I can't wait till when they're big. And I realized, I, I, we stopped talking, and I sat on my, at my, my office desk, in my chair, and I thought about it. Firstly, which is the lesser of the important things, why am I defending an H, like a TV show? Like, there's no, why am I, yeah, this is just silly. The second part, why am I not offended? Why are we, as a church, supporting a Mexico missions trip who is helping an organization called The Well that rescues women from sexual slavery? Why are we sending money to IJM or talking about the horrors and sharing links with each other about the horrors of sex slavery? One of the first scenes in the first, I I don't know if it's the first episode, very early on in the series, and a lot of you have seen it, some of you haven't, the the dragon lady, she's just, I think she's supposed to be depicted as a teenager. Her older brother gives her away as like, just just gives her away. You You don't have control of your life. I'm the king or whatever he was. He gives her away to this scary looking tribesman and he rapes her and she cries. So she's crying as she's being thrusted and being abused. Why didn't I shut it off? Why is that okay? 
The reason why I, it was okay for me and what I'm going to encourage us all is because when we're not paying attention, when we're not critical, when we don't have a spouse or an accountability partner saying, oh, like just maybe pointing something out, that the world tricks us. We, we, we need each other. We need these conversations. We need support because we'll be tricked. Because what happens is that it'll turn things that we hate and transform it into our favorite form of entertainment. I'm sharing my personal story. I'm sure you can relate. Some things that we hate can become entertaining to us if we're not united in this front together. I needed Unji to, to, to ask me that question. And we need each other to ask those questions. If we're not paying attention, if we're not sensitive, again, if we're not critical, we're going to have blind spots. And when we leave room in our diet or in our hearts, we're empty space where it's not being filled with the, with the greens and the vegetables, with God's word. The world will just go right in and put up a hammock and set up camp there and get comfortable. We need to tell each other to rip, that, rip that, the world out and let's put more of God in. So this is what I want us to commit to. First, we got to start receiving grace, not letting guilt get to the point where it's, it's just controlling our lives, but like, like putting, our shoes into this, putting ourselves into the shoes of this woman who was probably, man, like shamed like crazy. Can you imagine your whole neighborhood, all your groups of friends knowing everything you did wrong? Man, like she was put in so much shame, but she's such a great recipient of love. And that's what I want of us, to forgive ourselves and to receive love. And secondly for the exercise and the diet, to make a commitment. What do we need to start doing and practicing? And even if we've done it before, just getting back on the horse, going back to the gym, what do we need to start consuming more in your life, with your time, with your free time, and whatever? What are you watching, and what are you not watching? Can we decide it right now? I'm actually, I know that in in sermons, it's usually just kind of, oh, you sit on it, we pray, and we go. But I'm actually going to be quiet for like, 30 seconds. And I'm going to ask you to think about how you can respond. And if you have a notebook, if you have a phone, I want you to write it down. So why is I, uh, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more important? Why does this even matter? Like, why, like well, who cares what we watch? And, you know, as long as I get married in the end and just have sex with my spouse, like, why does it even matter? Eventually it'll work out. Having a good sex ethic and practice and matters because keeping your sexuality within God's desires will allow you to walk more closely and have a richness of following him. If you commit sexual sin, your life is not over. That does not compromise how God loves you and forgives you. But it does compromise your closeness. So that's why it's important. That's why we are doing a series like this. That's why I'm saying these things. I imagine that this woman fell 
deeply in love with Jesus for what he did. There's this part, there's this book by C.S. Lewis called The Screwtape Letters. Many of you have read it. Others of you have heard of it or maybe you don't know. But it's just a bunch of letters compiled into, bound into a book uh, from a demon speaking to a demon. And the whole point of the book is how the older, more experienced demon, the uncle of the, of the other one, is giving him advice on how to ruin a, a Christian's life. So it's just, you know, it's very interesting, like C.S. Lewis's take on and how the enemy can get to Christians. And, and there's a couple chapters on sex and how the demon can, can, can attack, the, the, excuse me, attack the Christian in his sex life. And this is what the demon says as he's teaching. Talk to him, this is the Christian, talk to the Christian about moderation in all things. If you can once get him to the point of thinking that, well, religion is all very well up to a point, you can feel quite happy about his soul. A moderated religion is as good for us as no religion at all, and it's more amusing. The demon is saying to the other one, get him to be, get him to enjoy moderated religion, a passive, an idle, a, a, a guilt-stricken and halted religion, because that's actually better than atheism. And for us, it's more entertaining. Let me the greatest tragedy when it comes to sexual sin is not the actual action. It's not just because you watched pornography or you, you know, participated in whatever the other things. That's bad. That does make you feel a, a distance from God, and we do need to address it, like I, you know, spent the whole 30 minutes talking about. But it's not the worst thing. The worst thing is when our guilt and our sexual sin and the distance that's created cripples us from following Jesus closely. The worst part of sexual sin is not just the deed. It's when the deeds combined take a, uh, a passionate kingdom worker, servant, child of Jesus and transforms them into passive onlooker, passive attendee. Idle, moderated, religious person. This is important. I want all of us to commit to this community, to the accountability, to the exercise components, to, to, to having a filter of what we're absorbing and how much scripture is being the thing that's teaching us about sex. I want us to do all these things, not just because I want you to stop watching pornography, It's because I want you to have a closeness in walking with Jesus and be that kingdom worker that you're called to. So let's accept God's grace this morning. Right now, let's forgive ourselves and let's be empowered by his grace to be pure. Let's bow in prayer together. Oh, actually, no, no, no. (laughs) Silly me. (laughs) Ha ha, silly. That's what happens when I don't pay attention to myself. I'm actually, we're going to read a prayer. Uh, So I'm going to ask you all to rise. And we're going to do this together. Because, like I said, we're all in it together. I'm going to project a prayer. And we're just going to, when it's, first slide is going to be me, and then us, and then me, and then us. It's just going to alternate. When, uh, you'll see the slide, it'll say all, and it'll be in italics. And that's when we'll read it together. So we're just going to call and response kind of style read, okay? And let's, let's read on a slower pace. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thou hast led me singing to the cross where I fling down all my burdens and see them vanish, where my mountains of guilt are leveled to a plain, where my sins disappear, though they are the greatest that exist and are more in number than the grains of fine sand. For there is power in the blood of Calvary to destroy sins more than can be counted even by one from the choir of heaven. Thou hast given me a hillside spring that washes clear and white, and I go as a sinner to its waters, bathing without hindrance in its crystal streams. At the cross, there is free forgiveness for poor and meek ones, and ample blessings that last forever. The blood of the Lamb is like a great river of infinite grace with never any diminishing of its fullness as thirsty ones without number drink of it. O Lord, forever will thy free forgiveness live that was gained on the Mount of Blood. In the midst of a world of pain, it is a subject for praise in every place, a song on earth, an anthem in heaven, its love and virtue knowing no end. I have a longing for the world above where multitudes sing the great song, for my soul was never created to love the dust of earth. Though here my spiritual state is frail and poor, I shall go on singing Calvary's anthem. May I always know that a clean heart full of goodness is more beautiful than the lily, that only a clean heart can sing by night and by day, that such a heart is mine when I abide at Calvary. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.